Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning begins in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, and then picks up in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, continues to the end of the chapter. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only to the world, so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us the Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Before we consider these words, let's pray with one another and ask the Lord to give us ears to hear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I simply rejoice at the privilege of opening up this your word on this your Lord's day. I would ask that you now would come through the power of the Spirit, the one who is the illuminator of this word who brings light into our souls, who brings light into our life. Let your word not simply be true as it always is, but real and transformative to our hearts, which we desperately need him to do. We come in that spirit today. We come submissively. We know that we need to be challenged and corrected by this word. We also would plead with you that you would comfort us in the gospel by this word 
and that in that comfort you would not cause us to be lazy, but that you would compel us by your love to answer the call of gospel love and thus love one another even as we have been loved. Lord Jesus, be mindful of our needs right now. And Holy Spirit, come now in proportion to our needs. Make your presence so powerfully known that it would be inescapable for us. And we would be profoundly affected for your glory and for our good. We submit to you in this. Come, move about us in the power of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, it's so hard to believe, even in praying that prayer that it was five years ago, that I was peeking in that door from the side. It was in January of that year where we first started meeting, for those of you who are new with us. Started meeting January the 16th. We had that fancy particularization service on November the 20th that same year. But January 16th, I was peeking through that door wondering if anybody was going to show up that morning, if I was going to be preaching to my family alone that day, and more of you than we thought showed up, and I was amazed, and you actually stayed, and then more of you have come in those last five years, and it's been a joy, simply a joy and an honor to week after week open up God's Word with you, and to see the Spirit of the Lord create receptivity in your heart to that word, to see you obeying that word, when that word came in hard ways, in difficult ways, when that word came in comforting and joyous ways, you responded to that word. And it's just an incredible joy. And one of the things that we've seen in the the increase and in the growth of the body of Christ here at Cornerstone is the fact that your manifest love for God that's found in word and worship and your manifest love for one another that's displayed in your relationships over and over and over is the overwhelming testimony of why people end up being members of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. I love sitting and exploring Cornerstone classes and then having personal meetings afterwards with those in whom the Lord is drawing into this body and to hear them say, we see a love for the word, we see a love for the gospel, we see a love within the body of Christ here at Cornerstone, and that draws us into this body. just want to give the Spirit and God the credit that He deserves for that work in our midst. That's a work of Him, brothers and sisters. It's not a work of us. We can't muster or conjure that up. And as beautiful and as wonderful it is to see that testimony and to Week after week to get the joy of preaching to people who love to hear God's word. That's an awesome thing as a preacher. This is an amazing thing. I have to pinch myself at the privilege of being able to look out and see receptivity to the word of God. As strong and as powerful as that testimony is and has been over the last five years, you and I both know it's not where it needs to be. It's never where it needs to be, but it's not where it needs to be. We've got to press in to that love, to go further and deeper into the love of God that it might be perfected, as John is calling us to hear in this word in 1 John chapter 4. You know, whenever you're in a relationship and you decide to just simply relax into the easy comfort and love of that relationship, what often begins to happen 
is that that relationship begins to sell off the capital of its intimacy rather than continue to build into and strive in that love so that it would become increasingly full, increasingly complete. If we wind up simply relaxing and simply enjoying in it and relaxing on our laurels into that love, isn't this wonderful and agreeing with the What actually begins to happen if we sit in that place is we begin to regress in our love for the Lord rather than progress in our love for the Lord. We have to have a love of Christ in us that compels us to move forward and we don't slip back into saying, oh, things are great. Things have been good. Isn't this sweet? Let's just sit here. Let's just stay here. Marriages in this room, you know this all too well. All it takes is not paying attention to your marriage for a period of time because things are good. They're easy. And all of a sudden, you pop up on something. You realize, wait, we have not built the loving capital and intimate relationship over a period of time to address now the significant challenges of the call of love in the moment that we're in. I actually believe that that's important because I believe we as a local congregation, the time in which we exist, in the nation in which we exist, will continue to face increasing challenges and tests to our love for one another and our love for Christ. It's going to continue to be tested as more and more of us begin to face an antagonism from the world because of our love for Christ and challenges even within the body of Christ to simply let things go, let things slide, not love each other in the challenging ways that love is being called to in this passage because it's just kind of easy to get along without until things really aren't good. And things have to be addressed and challenges have to be addressed. You want the reservoir of love that is perfected in Christ, given to us by the Spirit that's growing us to continue to grow and to continue to give yourself to it. That's what we're pursuing. Wouldn't it be wonderful to say in the next five years here at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church that we've seen manifest evidence of the increasing of the perfection of Christ's love in our midst and we can that love of Christ and love of brother have been manifest in our midst. I can list in dozens of ways the ways that I've seen that over the course of the last five years. I'd love to list it in hundreds of ways in the days to come. Now, for some of you, that may sound like a lot of work. That sounds like heavy, hard, difficult, challenging kind of things to hear. Yes, it is. Love is hard work. Love is hard work. We need not lose that. It's not always sunshine and roses. It's not warm and fuzzies by the fire with hot chocolate all the time. Now, does it experience that? Do we experience that in loving relationships? Sure we do. But by and large, are your relationships characterized by those hallmarky moments? No, they're not. Those moments of sweetness and intimacy and flashes of joy and experience of the intimacy that both bubbles up in a relationship and in relation with the Lord comes on the heels of a great work of God in us and us answering the call of God's love towards one another, which is a great work that must come from us. That's what's going on in this passage. John is teaching us that God has poured out a perfect love into us 
And as he has poured out a perfect love into us, that perfect love, when it has its way, brings us further into the perfection of his love. And it has manifest evidence for that taking place in our lives. So we want to look at that. We want to look at the perfect love of God as it is shown and testified to and spoken of in this passage. And we want to look at how that perfect love perfects us and how that perfection manifests itself in evidence in our lives. We want to look at that and then we want to apply that directly to our hearts today. Now I included in the reading 1 John 3.23. Like why did we do that? We already... Nay, you already preached on this. Why did you include that? Okay. 1 John 3.23 is actually giving us a little glimpse into the structure of where John goes in chapter 4. If you can look at 1 John 3.23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at 1 John 4.1-6, what was the whole focus of 1 John 4.1-6? Believing, confessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's the final part of verse 23? And love one another just as he has commanded us. What's the last part of 1 John 4, 7 through 21? It's on love. 1 John 3, 23 gives us an outline for 1 John 4. John is saying, here's how you know that you know, because that's what this book is about, assurance that we are indeed in Christ. Here's how you know that you are Christ. You are confessing, you are believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You have a truthful, believing and trusting relationship in Christ, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. And you are loving one another, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. That's what John is actually doing. He's given us this command and now he's unpacking it in 1 John chapter 4. And he says, in this section of which we're looking at, our belief in Christ is a belief and a knowledge and embrace of his love that's revealed to us in the gospel. And as his love is revealed to us in the gospel, it works in us and perfects us so that we love one another. So let's look at this together and how it is that he does this for us. The perfect love of God, you see it right there in verses 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. In clear, John-like prose, he says it very directly. If you love, you're of God. If you don't love, you're not of God. So love one another. Now the loving of one another, as he says it here in this text, is not... If you love one another, then you've achieved a relationship with God. No. You have a relationship with God, therefore you love one another. The reason that's critically important is that you can't do that which you don't have or has not been given to you. Uh, St. Augustine years ago prayed, Command what you will, but give what you command. Command what you will, but give what you command. Lord, in other words, command me to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but give me the love by which I am to love my brothers and sisters in Christ because I don't have the love in and of myself. I am not the origin or the source of love. God is love. 
He's the origin and the source of love. And he's manifested that love in the Lord Jesus Christ to us. He's manifested. He's revealed it. Two times in this passage we're told no one can see God. It reminds me of Exodus chapter 33. When Moses asked the Lord to see God. And God said, you can't see me and live. But I'm going to show you the, the outstreamings of my glory. But when Jesus comes, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of what? The invisible God. Jesus makes God visible. What do we see when we see Jesus? What do we learn about God when we see Jesus? If Jesus reveals God, here's what we learn. We learn he's loving. We learn the very definition of love when we see Jesus. Look at how he says it in verses 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When we see Jesus, we see the love of God revealed to us. Now, I love the fact that John uses that word propitiation. We've talked about this word. Some of you will remember 1 John chapter 2, where that word, we unpacked it in a little bit of detail. And I think it's important in this moment because when I say God is love and we are to love one another, what do we mean? How are we defining love? This word propitiation goes a long way in helping give to us a definition of love because love in our day and time is defined by all kinds of things. But this word propitiation is speaking of the cross. When you see the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're seeing a portrait of love. When you see the bloody Savior hanging on the cross for the sins of his people, you're seeing the most beautiful portrait of love. That's what John is saying here in this word propitiation. But I think he uses this word strategically for the ears of his hearers in Asia Minor and his and our ears today as this word is proclaimed to us because that word propitiation you, you remember what it means it means to remove or to turn away or to satisfy the wrath of god wait that's about as far from love <laughs> as you could get you mean god's angry yes God's, God is wrath. We just said God is love. How is it that God, is, God has wrath? If, if, how, how, do those, how do those two work together? Well, as the theologians would like to put it, love is intrinsic. It's inherent in the character of God. And wrath is a response of God to the breaking of holiness or righteousness. Propitiation speaks of the holiness of of God. God is love, but God's not only love. God is holy. And so God loves in holiness and he is holy in his love. Meaning this is not a permissive kind of love. This is not a kind of love that sweeps things under the rug and acts like things are okay when they're not. This is not a kind of love that just pretends. 
This is the kind of love that deals with the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of the commands of God and can in no way look blind eye to sin. He says, if you want to really understand the definition of love, you've got to understand the reality of holiness and God's holiness and his action towards sin with Jesus on the cross. You might think, well, if God loves us and we sinned, he might just kind of just, I don't know, don't think about that and just love us. But he's holy. He has to think about that. That has to be adjudicated. He can't act like there is not an offense, a grievous offense against him, the Almighty God, the one who has given commandments, one who has made us upright, but we have sought out many devices. We've been formed in his image, but we've sought out our own path. He cannot in any way sweep that under the rug like it's not a big deal. Sin is a huge deal to God. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal to God. It's, just, it's massive. If, if sin's not a big deal, then the cross is a way exaggerated response to sin. It's completely hyperbolic. But if sin's a huge deal, it makes sense why he had to send his own son to pay the penalty for sin so that we who are the objects of his wrath could become the objects of his love. Makes total sense. This is why when we belittle sin, we belittle the cross. And when we belittle the cross, we belittle the reality of love. And when we belittle the reality of love, it doesn't have a transformative impact on our hearts. And when we don't have, it doesn't have a transformative impact on our hearts, it doesn't perfect in us and it doesn't spread in among us the power of God's gospel love all of it's connected and so he says here Jesus has come to pay the penalty for our sins he has satisfied he's removed the wrath of God from us how did he do that he did that by succumbing to the wrath of God he did that by Allowing the wrath, welcoming the wrath of God, standing in our place as the substitute to say, I know all of this should be poured out upon those who have sinned against you, but because of my love for you, because of my love for you, God has sent his son that he would pay and satisfy the full measure of his justice and righteousness towards sin. That is the definition of love that is given here in this chapter. That's what love looks like. The perfect love of God. Now, because Jesus has, has won a standing for us through his merits, he's earned. We like to say salvation is, is not earned. Well, it's not earned for you. It's earned for Christ, though. Christ earned your salvation. He paid for it with his very blood. That's why it's free to you. God doesn't require payment twice. It's paid for once by Christ, and then he gives you his merits and his inheritance. That's the joy of salvation. When you realize that you have racked up quite a bill, and you have a debt that you cannot pay, and the wages of that debt is death, and someone steps in your place and fully pays for it, 
and gives you all of the inheritance and all of the riches and all of the merits of their character and all of which they have won for you. It has a powerful effect in changing your heart from someone who is a taker to someone who's a giver. Or someone who says, everybody love and care for me, to someone who says, now I freely love and care for everyone else. It turns the way we function in life on its head. God is committed not to change us by simple fear of the chastisement that comes with commandment. He is committed to change us through the transformative love of Christ so that though we are absolutely free in the grace of Christ and there is nothing we could do, good or bad, to compromise our love, we would never want to compromise our love for Christ and so we pursue righteousness more and more with the full trajectory of our lives. That's what's perfecting in us. I had a dear friend who's actually a pastoral mentor. He was the Baptist Student Union Director at Jones Junior College in Ellisville, Mississippi. I know you all know where that is, um, that thriving metropolis. Um, he was very instrumental in my life, just spoke into my life. And first, he's the first person who ever laid a hand on my shoulder and said, I think you're going to be preaching God's Word one day. And I can assure you, I thought he was crazy. Obviously not quite as crazy as I, was, as I thought he was then. We was scared to death at the prospect that that could be true. I had that haunting internal feeling like, goodness, you're probably right. Um, he served in Vietnam. He, he was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. He was actually shot down as a fighter pilot in Vietnam and fell into the ocean. While he was in the ocean waiting, literally waiting to die, he was injured in the attack. A Vietnamese, an enemy, took his boat, came over to him, and rescued him. Put him in the boat, took him all the way back to the shore, and left him so that his platoon, all of his soldiers could come, and they could retrieve him and take him to safety so he wouldn't end up in a Vietnamese prison, which would not have been good, or have been left to die out in the ocean, which you would expect. This man, who was the arch enemy of one who was just firing upon them, became in that moment one who loved him to the degree to save his life, even with the risk of becoming treason himself, in order that one might live. Now, I hope that you can see gospel in that. I hope that you can understand, too, why when I tell you that story or any story of that nature, your heart wants to jump out of your chest with joy because it's gospel reflection. It's gospel truth. You know that when we, we, we experience the reality of someone loving us and laying their life down for us and serving us, even though we don't deserve it and everything that we have done would speak against it, there's something so powerful that it begins to turn our hearts away from ourselves and our sins and on to others that we would love in the manner in which we've been loved. Do you see, when we have received the perfect love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we then begin to give that love in greater measure to all in whom we have been called to love. That's the perfecting in love that's described in this passage. In verses 14 to 17, 
you actually see John teach us about how that perfecting happens. I want to just look at that briefly. How does that perfecting happen? That perfecting happens when the spirit of truth leads us to confession that Jesus is Lord and he is the Savior overall. That's what we see in verses 14 and 15. We see that the spirit of God, verse 13, leads us to testify and to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and we abide then in the love of God. And as we abide in the love of God, you know what begins to happen in us? The perfecting of God's love begins to take place within us. Why is this so often that when you experience the love of God and it freshly falls upon you in the power of God's Word, that your response is, I want to go and I want to do likewise for my Lord. Why is that? That's a stirring up of the Spirit of God within you. It's bringing to greater completion, greater fullness of the Spirit of the Lord in you. But that's not all there is here. He says at the end of this passage, verses 18 to 21, that the representation, the reflection, the evidence that that's really taking root is not that you hear and you feel great, but that you go and love your brother or your sister. How, do we, how are we supposed to love them? Oh, just the way you've been loved. Just the way you've been loved. And that's when it feels really sober. You mean I'm supposed to lay down my life for my brothers and sisters? That's exactly what I mean. For the joy that was said before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. For the joy that was said before him, he could see on the horizon the glory. He wanted to manifest that love. For the joy that was said before him, he, had, he laid his life down. Romans 12, we are to be a living sacrifice. Acceptable in the sight of God, which is our spiritual service of worship. This means that when we are bought with the price that is the love of Christ... We have the debt of love, which doesn't mean we have to pay it back. It means that we get the joy of living under the reality that we will never do anything that could fully meet out the fullness of the love that has been granted to us in Christ. Sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, wait, God, if, I could never do that if God called me to it. We usually do not have the grace in the moment to bear the thought of that. And that's why it scares us to death. But if the Lord were to call us to that, He would supply the grace to be able to bear up under that. And there is nothing that the Lord could call you to that He has not already done over and above in His own cost towards you in love. And so when He says, love as I've loved you, Realize that there's nothing that he could ask of you that would ever be too much. There's nothing that he could ask of you to ever be too much. And the, the joy is learning to say, how do I die today? How do I give up my life for the life of my, my Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ? You, you need financial help? I've, I've got financial. I want to give that. Rather than thinking primarily self-protectively. Isn't that how we think? We've got money over here and we see our brother in need and we think, yeah, but if I give to them, that might put me in a difficult situation and I don't want to be in a difficult situation, so maybe someone with more money should meet that need. That's how we think, isn't it? That's how we think. 
primarily in that self-protective. You know, I need to go help that person, but, you know, I, I like my day off. And, and, and it's, you know, this is my only time. And, and I know that they need help, but I, I, think, I think I'm just going to keep my, my time here. I have to be someone with more time who could do it. That's often the... Am I describing your internal dialogue like I'm describing my internal dialogue? Are you, you, can't, you picking up what I'm putting down? All right? That's what's going on inside of us. I want you to see the impulse of that heart is self-protective. It's figuring out how it doesn't have to sacrifice. Why it's better for someone to do so and not you. Whereas, what would the impulse that says, wait, Christ is given us everything and he owns everything. I don't even own anything. It's not my time. It's not my money. It's his. I've been, I've been bought. What would it be like to give sacrificially like he can give it back to me if he wants whenever he wants and he will because he promises to provide for me. But because I have it right now and someone else doesn't, it's as good as theirs. And I'll just, I'll just wait with anticipation about how he's going to answer when I need it. Feel how different that is? It feels almost reckless. It feels almost reckless. Almost like a father God giving his son, his only son on the cross, to save a wretch like us. It it sounds almost like that. Now that... That what's underneath that is fear. F- fear like, can't, can't give that, can't give time, can't give money, I've got to hold on. Fear, fear that something might happen. And then I won't have the provision that's there. Perfect love casts out fear. You see, when you begin wrapped up in, in, in the love of God, you just think about this. The entirety of your future, if you are in Christ, and my future in Christ, is absolutely certain. He will utterly and completely provide for you, and He will take you home to live eternally with Him. And you will rejoice in a glorified body one day when He returns in the new heavens and the new earth. Your future is absolutely certain. But why do we live with anxiety? Why do we live with such worry? Why do we live with such stress? The reason is that it's not really sunk in. The perfection of his love has not fully captured us. In the context in which John is speaking of, he's speaking about the judgment seat. He's speaking about the end of time. But here's the realization. We may believe, oh, at that day, you know, at that day, at that day, Jesus, Jesus will stand for me as an advocate and he will, he will, as my, as the file folder of my sin, in a sense, is recounted. And the idle words that I've spoken and the misdeeds that I've done, Jesus shows that he's covered them with his blood. I feel good about that. But day in and day out, I'm living a self-protected, self-consumed life. Is to say the recognition of God's love has not really invaded in a perfecting way in the present. In a way that we're anticipating and hoping for and saying we're ready for in the future. And what John is saying is, no, look at it now. How do you love your brother and sister now? How do you love them now? See, fear always stops us from this. 
When I peeked in that door on January the 16th at the beginning of Cornerstone, I was afraid. I was afraid you wouldn't come, but I was actually afraid of something else. I was afraid of failing. I was afraid of looking like a fool. I was afraid of messing up a good thing that was already started by touching it. Not everything I touch turns to gold, you understand. Perfect love would have cast out that fear. Perfect love gives us the freedom to do the right thing, and if it fails, to trust the Lord, who is the one who promises to use even our failures for the advance of His kingdom. Because I have a Christ who has already succeeded on my behalf. Therefore, I can fail. I can take a risk and fail. I was afraid of being rejected. It's often why we struggle to build in relationship trust and actually share who it is that we are because we did it once and the person might have trampled on it or we might have gotten hurt. Maybe it's why there's distance in your marriage. Maybe it's why you look at Thursday this week with such concern Gathering with your family, tiptoeing around all of the issues, right? These are the things. Fear of rejection is often, is often there, and we, we don't want to put our hearts out there, the real us, to experience the real communion of another in communion with the Lord because we could be rejected. But if I have the perfect love of Christ who has accepted me, the greatest judgment, the highest tribunal in all of the world, in all of the cosmos, has welcomed me into his family and invites me to the Eucharistic Thanksgiving meal. Why is it that I won't take risks of being rejected at lesser judgments? Maybe it's I'm not really living from the place of gospel love. And maybe that's why I can't give out gospel love to others. As the gospel love of Christ is perfected in us, the gospel love of Christ flows through us to others. And so if you hurt me, it's okay, I forgive you because I've hurt many people before. And I won't hold it against you because God doesn't hold it against me. And let me tell you, he's got a list that he could hold against me. But I'm living in the freedom of being a forgiven sinner who's becoming a saint, whom the Lord is perfecting day in and day out. And if Christ can die for the church that's so messed up as us, surely we can be patient with her. Because love is patient. And love is kind. You see, when you begin to live from a place of gospel love, the perfecting of that love begins to manifest in the way that you face fear and in the way that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you begin to take risks that from the world's eyes are going to look foolish, but from gospel logic will be utterly sane. Utterly sane. And it could be that the Lord today is bringing to your own heart and mind ways in which 
Fear of failure, fear of rejection, underneath that fear of pain, just afraid of things being difficult and being hard. Could it be that those things are more pronounced in your heart than the love of Christ in the gospel? That you are saying no to something that you know you should say yes to because you're afraid. And that's no way to live. Let me tell you, the more that you decide to protect yourself from pain, (laughs) the more it will catch up to you. And when it catches you, it'll break you. But if you choose in the gospel to chase after the pain of bearing the cross, you'll catch the pain. But it'll make you. It won't break you. Well, it may break you first. But it'll make you in the end. As I look at the next five years... By God's grace, the joy that we get to share together here at Cornerstone. My prayer is simple. More of this love. More of this love. More of this love. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, thank you for the grace of your spirit who speaks the words of truth who convicts and challenges our hearts, who comforts us in the gospel, who compels us to obedience. Spirit of God, do your work among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.